Please join me in prayer. Redeemer, ready us to be changed by the light of your word. Turn the soil of our hearts so that love and truth may take root and grow. Give us humility to receive the seeds of righteousness and faith that we may become hosts of your spirit and conduits of your grace and peace. Amen. Colossians 3, 12-14 Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive us the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In their book, Switch, Chip and Dan Heath tell a story about Tom Watson Jr., who was the longtime CEO of IBM. Uh, back in the 1960s, one of his executives made a decision that ended up costing the company $10 million. Uh, which, if you ingest that for inflation, was about $96 million. Uh, just a colossal, colossal mistake. So you can imagine that when Watson summoned the offending executive into his office, uh, that guy came in expecting the firing squad, right? Well, according to a journalist, Watson asked him, do you know why I've asked you to come in here? And the man replied, well, I assume so you can fire me. But Watson looked at him kind of puzzled fire you. I just spent $10 million on your education. <laughs> Learned from it. And that was it. Anyone have a boss like that? Bonty's like, I do. <laughs> well, I don't know how that story ended, whether the executive went on to become a shining star in the organization or whether he kind of faded somewhere into the pack of middle management. But the decision not to fire him was risky. Somebody had to absorb the loss, uh, either the executive himself or, or Watson as the, ultimately as the boss or the shareholders. The, the debt didn't simply vanish. It either was transmitted or somehow it was transformed. And, and in many ways, that is the mystery that is at the heart of forgiveness. When we are hurt, when we are wronged by another, a kind of debt is created. And something has to happen. Justice demands that that debt be paid somewhere by someone. And so we live with the tension of not wanting to allow bitterness and rage to consume us and the instinct to hold others accountable, to not allow wrongs to keep on piling up. And forced to choose between a private therapeutic experience or the pursuit of justice, we wonder if extending grace really changes things. And yet forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian story. We're continuing to explore the one another's of the New Testament, these passages that kind of serve as the building blocks for how to become a community that is capable of loving each other. And one of the most frequent admonitions that Paul laces throughout his letters in the New Testament is this call to forgive one another 
If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. For most of us, though, forgiveness is complicated. How do we get there? So today I want to explore that question through a parable of Jesus, which tells us that in the justice of the kingdom, the forgiveness we receive becomes the basis for the forgiveness that we offer. So I want to invite you to turn to another scripture passage, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Uh, a little background on it before we jump in. Jesus, uh, this, this section falls in, a, teach, in, a, in a, a section where Jesus is teaching his disciples about how to restore somebody who has uh, broken trust with community, how to uh, bring them back after they have wronged somebody. And the disciples are stunned to hear that forgiveness by God and forgiveness of others are somehow interdependent on one another. And this is not a new theme. In fact, the only writer that Jesus attaches to the Lord's Prayer is this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. And so Peter asks this question, well, how many times are we to forgive? Seven times? Meaning there's a limit, right? Like we're not supposed to just be doormats uh, and let people walk all over us. Well, common rabbinic teaching was that you were to forgive a brother or sister up to three times. And I might be reading between the lines here, but I think the fact that Peter, by extending it to seven times, means that he has been following Jesus for a while, and he knows that he is going to go beyond the accepted norm. The question is, by how much? And so Jesus says not seven times, but 77 times, or some translations say 70 times seven and this is Jesus teaching at his best. Uh, he's being hyperbolic, right? I mean, he's not saying like, keep an Excel spreadsheet going. Let your spouse know, hey, you've gotten to 485 times. Ice is getting thin here. No, he is saying there is no limit. His end goal for his apprentices is that they become people who are forgiving by nature. Now, if you're like me, when you hear that, your kind of inner lawyer goes off. You, you know, Jesus, you don't know about my hurt. Uh, you don't know about this situation. You don't know about that. You don't know about the past. But because he's a great teacher, Jesus hears this objection, sees it coming a mile off, and tells a story about a king who has gotten out of the prosecution business altogether. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to go settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they told their master everything that had happened. They were outraged. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. It's not a subtle story. But the key to understanding it is in the scope of what the king does. He decides it's time to reconcile his accounts. And so he discovers that there's this guy who owes him just an obscene amount of money. Uh, and Evie says 10,000 bags of gold. The word is actually 10,000 talents. Let me break that down just a little bit because a single talent is the equivalent of 20 years wages for a typical worker. So in other words, this is an impossible debt. This is you know, 200,000 years of annual income. And now some of you will have the disposition to kind of get out the amortization schedule and try to work out, like, how long would it take to pay this back? You've missed the point. Jesus' point is that this is an unimaginable amount of money. It's more than anyone can access. It's more than anyone can ever pay back. And so this servant, having been called to give an account and seeing that his life is in ruin, decides to do the only thing he can. He throws up a Hail Mary and says, give me time and I will pay you back. It's a crazy thing to say, but it's met by an even crazier response because the king is patient. He is moved with compassion. He doesn't just give him more time. He wipes the slate clean. No strings, no harsh words of warning, just mercy, forgiveness. But then the story moves to the second act. The same servant, still reeling from his streak of crazy good luck, comes out of the courts, finds uh, another person, a, a fellow servant, who owes him about three or four months' wages. Right? This isn't couch change, but unlike the first amount, it's possible to pay this amount back. So he grabs the guy by the throat and says, pay me what you owe me. And the servant falls to his knees and pleads with almost exactly the same words. Give me pay, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. And all this is taking place out in the open. There are others around. They're just kind of watching awkwardly the scene unfold, just waiting for this guy to break into a smile because they all know he has just been forgiven this crazy amount of debt. But his face doesn't soften. He's harsh. He has the man thrown in prison until he can pay off the debt. Everyone is stunned. They can't believe it. And in their shock and in their anger, they take it back to their king, who calls that servant then back into his courts. But this time the exchange is short. Justice has its day. He says to him, in effect, you don't get it at all. You thought mercy and compassion were just these things that happened to you? What do you think happened to that debt? I took it for you. You were shown compassion, but you chose to show cruelty. You were given mercy, but you chose to deal harshly. You were offered citizenship in a kingdom ruled by grace, but you chose to hustle your way through 
a kingdom of judgment. Have it your way. And then to drive the point home, Jesus adds, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So what does it mean to forgive? Well, the word Jesus uses is a fiamai, and surprisingly, it is, uh, you know, given the scope of the story, it's the word used, the same word used for dropping a debt. In the last book that he wrote before his death, Tim Keller describes the word like this. To forgive is to deny oneself revenge, to absorb the cost, to not exact repayment by inflicting on them the things that they did to you in order to even the score. Therefore, forgiveness is always expensive to the forgiver. It is to give the perpetrator a gift they do not in any way deserve. To zero out the spiritual or the emotional debt that someone owes to you by taking that debt onto yourself, by somehow absorbing it into your body. When you pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, you are asking God, Look on me the same way that I look on the person who has done me wrong. So friends, this is your story and it is mine. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught that every sin created this sort of deposit of debt before God. That all of us together have created a a, a kind of moral debt that no one gets a pass from. And we add to this mountain every Every day, every white lie that we tell, every corner cut on a business deal, every tax return fudged, every biting word, every every time you are impatient with a child, every time you return kindness with indifference, or when someone needs your help and you turn away from them, when you abuse power, when you look at an image that breaks your spouse's heart, when you spread gossip, when you turn a blind eye towards injustice, or when you write somebody off that is as being beyond redemption. See, we are all in this boat. We all contribute to this moral debt. We have mismanaged the account. We do not have the means to pay. And to ask God forgiveness is not about asking for more time to set things right. It's to acknowledge that we owe more than we can possibly access. And so we are asking God to wipe it out all together. And the witness of scripture is that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the one who takes that debt on himself. And for many of us, that is where the gospel ends. With my receiving forgiveness, with this vertical dimension of God wiping out my debt. But the drama, according to Jesus, does not end there. See, you and I, we also have debtors. People who we have wronged. People who have wronged us, there is a horizontal dimension to forgiveness as well. The prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples continues, forgive us our debts as we forgive. There's a whole lot riding on that two-letter word, as. 
Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is some kind of quid pro quo arrangement or that God could forgive, but he's waiting to see uh, whether or not you're going to make the first move. Jesus is talking about the nature of forgiveness itself. uh, True forgiveness is not some vague commitment to an idea. It is an inward reality that gets into your bones and begins to change who you are. He's saying you cannot have one posture toward God and a different posture toward others. It is rooted in this this day-to-day life. And that's one of the reasons why forgiveness features so prominently in Paul's letters. We, we want to separate them out. When we're, when we're crosswise with a, with a neighbor or a coworker or a spouse or a parent or a, a sibling or whoever it might be. But, but Jesus and Paul together, they're saying, look, it doesn't work like that. You are a whole person. How you relate is how you relate. If you routinely cut people out of your life because they have wronged you, or if you're consistently looking to punish someone for the wrong that they've done to you and give them the sort of transactional kind of forgiveness that is offered only after they have injured themselves enough, then in some measure, that is the way that you have processed how God has forgiven you. And so unforgiveness not, doesn't just become a psychological obstacle, it becomes a spiritual one as well. Some of us are stuck because we are carrying around a wound that we have not offered forgiveness for. We harbor anger and bitterness. And when we do that, we don't only cut ourselves off from relationships with others, we cut ourselves off in relationship with God. You cannot plead, be patient with me in one breath, And pay me back what you owe me in another. Forgiveness is like oxygen in our lungs. We can only make room to inhale God's grace when we are also exhaling grace to those who have done us wrong. And so many people try to get through life trying to hold their breath. Second thing this parable shows us about forgiveness is that in the same way that we underestimate the debt that we owe by convincing ourselves that we are not that bad, we justify the anger that we have toward others by imagining that they really are that bad. Miroslav Volf captures this well in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He writes this, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. When one knows that the torturer will not eventually triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and so to rediscover one's own sinfulness. If you are going to forgive, you must somehow identify with the one who has done wrong. You got to realize that they're human in the same way that you are, and you are sinful in the same way that they are. It's hard for us to do this. Psychologists have identified a cognitive bias known as fundamental attribution error, which is the tendency to describe. our, our own negative behavior to situational factors, right? But when we see that same behavior in others, we assume it is because it's a result of their character. 
Like if I'm habitually late to work, it's because I have demands at home that require my attention. It's because the road between my home and the office is plagued with construction. There's obstacles beyond my control. But if you're late for work, it's because you're a jerk who does not value my time. Did you notice that every time the second servant is described, he is called a fellow servant? The word in the Greek is syndulos, which literally means one who serves with. It's a way of saying that they are in it together. They are both together under the mercy of the king. Ultimately, the thing that gets the servant in trouble is when he deals with his fellow servant, not on the basis of their equal relationship, this idea that they share a common humanity, a common indebtedness. It's because he imagines himself the king. And it's tempting to hear this story and think, well, nobody really acts like that, right? I mean, nobody could be that callous. Nobody would receive that level of mercy and then just turn around and be heartless towards somebody else. But Jesus is a brilliant teacher, and he tells this story that is about a failure of forgiveness because that is usually how the human story plays out. You have debtors. I imagine, you know, in your own life, you can think of somebody right now that you have put in the prison of your imagination. Maybe it's a parent who wasn't there for you enough, a, a spouse who fails to see you, a coworker who is, seems bent on bringing you pain, a, a classmate who betrayed you, uh, somebody you have locked up. A few years back, I realized that I was in that boat. I had this serious resentment that uh, began to build up uh, against me and the lead pastor of the church that I was working with at the time. I allowed a single comment that he said become this lens through which I magnified every action that he took where I was concerned, every word that was spoken where I was concerned. And to be clear, it was something that cut pretty deep, like it played to all of my insecurities. But rather than confront him about it, I held myself up in a morally superior posture. Like, I'm above the indignity of an insult. Like, that, he's just the kind of person that would say that. That's got nothing to do with me. That was the narrative I told myself. And publicly, I acted as if nothing happened. But privately, the damage worked its way in, and it became like this splinter in my heart that I could not get out. After a while, every time we'd have a conversation, I'd feel like this tension in my body well up. As time went on, whenever, you know, he came across my mind, which was like once an hour, I would have these unkind thoughts that popped up. My anger would come out at Jill and the kids. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just collateral damage. I, to be sure, I was angry at him. But I was also angry at myself for being young, for being naive. I was angry at life. Like, why do people at the top get to get by by treating people like this, like they don't matter. I was angry at God, like this happens in a church, like how do people like this keep getting these top positions? I was stuck, I was in a place of pain, and it resulted in spiritual and emotional exhaustion. I thought I had forgiven, but by not confronting and giving him the chance to apologize, I just excused it. And after four years, 
of keeping him locked away in this prison of my imagination, I realized that my bitterness had made me into somebody who needed forgiveness as much as I needed to forgive. So I invited him to lunch and I began by telling him about all of my resentment and anger that had been building up and about how this one comment that he made so long ago had taken root and needed to be dug out. And so I asked for forgiveness. And because I had allowed my bitterness to kind of create this narrative about who he was, I figured he would deny it. I figured he'd get defensive and then he'd go for the attack. This is probably going to be like one of the last days of my time at this church. But instead he looked at me, he hung his head low, and he said, you're right, I'm sorry. You were new, I didn't know you then. I did not do a good job of welcoming you onto this team, but you gotta know I'm so glad you are here. Will you forgive me? Four years of resentment evaporated in a one hour conversation. And suddenly it was like I could breathe again. We worked together for another six months. They were some of my best. People who knew me well said that I had begun to come back to myself again. And as the story plays out, a few years later, he would give me a call and say, hey, I put your name in at this church indicator. (laughs) Jury's out as to whether or not I need to forgive him for that. No, I'm just kidding. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Love you guys. But frequently, we are the ones who suffer the most when we fail to forgive, when we judge others by what we imagine our own worst tendencies to be. Our anger and our bitterness just mirrors back the darkest places of our hearts. And the more that I am unwilling to forgive, the more I begin to internalize the idea that maybe I am also unforgivable. Because if we cannot imagine the gift, how can we possibly receive it? It is only once the vertical dimension of God's grace to us becomes internalized by us that we have the ability to extend grace outward to others. And when grace gets brought in, it changes everything. Priest Ronald Rollheiser gives this analogy. Any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will transmit. In the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred, we must be like water purifiers, holding the poisons and toxins inside of us and giving back just the pure water, rather than being like electrical cords that simply pass on the energy that flows through them. Look, I get it. Some of the pain you have is deep. It is complex. Some of the wrongs that were done to you are deep. And it may take weeks, it may take months, it might take decades to allow the Spirit to break through. But I cannot help but wonder if we lingered a little bit longer when we prayed those words, forgive as we forgive. How many sons and daughters would still talk to their parents? How many husbands and wives would still be together? How how many friendships, how many churches, how many communities would be places where the kingdom breaks in because those words are spoken from the heart? 
The gospel of grace is that you were once pronounced guilty, but you have a God who was more than patient with you. And while you were busy plotting a way to work it out on your own, he took on your debt entirely. And it is so hard for us to get this when everything around us teaches us to give and receive love on the basis of moral performance. But we are taught to pray to our Father and children should not struggle to be loved. They just receive it as grace. And if you pay attention to it, it will change you so that you can begin to take on the family identity. The gospel is that you do not need to change in order to receive grace, but once you have received it, it will change you. And the greatest change is that you will begin to look like Jesus. So having breathed in the Father's love by grace, you will be able to breathe out the Son's ministry of reconciliation and forgiveness. Here's the thing, don't try to rush to the forgiveness until you've learned how to breathe. In the kingdom's economy of grace, it can only flow out of a transformed heart, but when it does, it changes everything. And so as we end, before we come to the table, I want us to join together in saying the prayer that Jesus taught us, the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to think about that word, as. When we get to that phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I'm going to ask you to pause for a moment. And you're going to have to actually think about this. Because the weight of inertia and years of practice will just have you roll on right to the next phrase. But I want you to pause for a moment. And in that pause, I want you to imagine the debt that you have been forgiven and ask God, where does forgiveness need to take place? And then receive the compassion he has given you. And if you have been holding your breath, pray that you will have the grace to breathe again. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.